the text from Habakkuk is really was the inspiration for the verse in Romans that in many ways launched Martin Luther's Reformation. The just shall live by faith. And that's part of why we picked that this, this week. Um, we'll be looking at 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. I would commend you to read the rest of the chapter. That's, the end is very personal. It reminds you that this is a letter written by a person to people who's going through some uh, difficult times. This could very well be the last letter that Paul writes. So, you know, he's not. In, it's not a good time for Paul. He's in prison and he's suffering, and that certainly comes in in, in this passage as well. In the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I solemnly urge you to proclaim the Be persistent, whether the time is favorable or unfavorable. Convince, rebuke, and encourage, with the utmost patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not put up with sound doctrine, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own desires. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander away to myths. As for you, always be sober, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, carry out your ministry fully. As for me, I'm already being poured out as a libation, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. From now on, there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. May God bless you here, you read his holy word. Let us pray. Lord, through your word proclaimed, may we encounter you, the living word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I had an opportunity to be in Northern Ireland uh, several times, and one was right after the peace, uh, Good Friday Peace Accord was signed. Um, tragically, also a few weeks after that, the Uma bombing had taken place, uh, and there were at least 20-some fatalities. And so, it was both a hopeful time in Northern Ireland as well as a tense time. <clears throat> and one of the things that was really interesting to get uh, a first-hand look at the troubles or the division between uh, the Catholics and the Protestants there, something that I think is consistently misunderstood in this country. And one story that I particularly liked, and this was actually told by a Protestant minister, was that there were a group of Catholic children that had to walk through a Protestant neighborhood to get to their school. And as they were walking through this neighborhood, they were being called all kinds of names, and they were, you know, it was just really disgusting things being screamed at these little children. And there was a priest walking with them, and the priest turned to the people that were screaming at the children and said, Brothers and sisters, we shouldn't talk this way. We're Christians. To which a woman in the crowd said, I'm not a Christian, I'm a Protestant. <clears throat> right? So it was, it's tribal, it's, a, it's a much tribal. Uh, conflict in Northern Ireland than it, than it was actually a religious difference. And that was very clear to me um, in my times when I was there. But on this Reformation Sunday, 
you know, one of the questions is why do we still maybe talk about the Reformation? Um, particularly, part of what we think about the Reformation, we also think of the tragedy of the church divided, and, and there were many people, you know, through 150 years or more, who who died because of this. Our particular branch of the of the church, the Reformed Church, that was founded in the Netherlands, the initial group of people who started the Reformation in uh, the Netherlands, many of them died um, at, at uh, the hands of first the Catholics that were local, and then the Inquisition at the hands of the um, Spanish king. So it was a very, it was a civil war many times, and many people died, and it was a tragic time. Um, and so I both appreciate the need for the Reformation and, and the remembrance of its tragic consequences. I can celebrate the power of the historical evangelical faith. I can also bemoan its Gnostic children of Protestant liberalism and American evangelicalism. Protestantism is, 50, is a 500-year-old reality, though perhaps in many ways no longer a necessity. But there are still things in all branches of Christianity that need protesting. Our name was Protestant, and that's because we were protesting. Initially, we didn't want to start a new church, but because of the politics and many other things, we have a divided church to this day. But we also realized that once the Protestant church left, how many different groups are there out there? How many different denominations? How many non-denominational churches? So it's kind of been a Pandora's box. Um, but what I want to talk about today is one of the most important things that the Protestant church, the Protestant movement lifted up was the centrality of preaching. It's kind of strange to preach about preaching. But it's something that is a central part of our worship every week. And I think this text, as well as this day, gives us an opportunity to think about what exactly is happening in the sermon and, and what is supposed to be happening. <laughs> and, and what are we both? What is a responsibility that I have and what's the responsibility you have? And most importantly, what is the gift that God gives us in the whole enterprise? Again, I think the even though I don't wear the robe most of the time here, <clears throat> I always, in my mind, wear the mantle of, of teacher. I take that part very seriously. It's one of the reasons I was attracted to the Reformed tradition. I didn't grow up in the Reformed tradition. We didn't have robes past Okay, that's that's what those you know those uh, those liberal mainliners did. Right? <laughs> we always were. I grew up being suspicious. If you wear if you wore a robe, you were probably just one step away from you know kissing the ring of the pope. Okay, I grew up in South Central Pennsylvania. A lot of uh, a lot of anti feeling about a lot of things there. Um, but my own academic and spiritual journey has been greatly fed by our our Catholic brothers and sisters, both. Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox Catholics as well. But what the Protestant Reformation reminded the church, and it was a, it was a, uh, a life and death need at the end of the late medieval period, was that we as Christians need to be exposed to, need to be taught, need to hear the clear meaning of the Word of God. And the early reformers, some of them um, 
before Martin Luther and those who came after, many of them were willing to give their life for that. John Huss, you may or may not know his name, he died uh, almost 100 years, or a little bit more than 100 years before Martin Luther started the Protestant Reformation. He died a Catholic priest, but who was accused of teaching heresy, and what he really was doing was trying to bring the Bible to the people. He once said, therefore, faithful Christians, seek the truth, listen to the truth, learn the truth, love the truth, tell the truth, learn the truth, defend the truth, even to death. And John Huss, Jan Huss, actually gave his life for that. Martin Luther, when he was on trial for his teaching, and again, the whole process of Reformation started out as an accident. Luther put his 95 Thesis on the Wittenberg Chapel, University Chapel door, it was in Latin. Okay, It was not to be uh, something that was to be spread out for the common people. It was to be an academic debate within the university community. And the truth of it is, what Martin Luther condemned, the University of Paris, a Catholic university, a papal university, had already condemned. Okay, so Martin Luther was concerned about his people. He, he was, it was strongly driven by a pastoral concern, but he wasn't starting trying to start a revolution. But eventually it did lead him to stand before the Pope of Legate. He represented the Pope and the most powerful man in the world, the Emperor. And this is what Luther said really believing that he was going to be killed after his sentence. He said, Since then you see majesty in your lordship, you seek a simple answer, I will give it to you in this manner. Unless I'm convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in the councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the scriptures. I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot, and I will not recant anything, since it is neither safe nor right to do, to go against conscience. May God help me. Amen. Now, in many ways, people see this as the birth of the individual in the Western world. Okay? I alone am captive to my conscience. But what he was really captive to is he says, I am bound by the scriptures. And my conscience is held captive to the word of God. Luther wasn't saying that my conscience is Lord. He's saying that my conscience must be obedient to the word of God. I don't know if you've ever seen this dramatically portrayed, but they often have Luther in movies where he is you know, boldly standing before all the powers. Those who saw the event <laughs> said he mumbled it in terror. One can be brave and have convictions and be terrified at the same time. Luther was. So this idea that our movement exists at the heart to lift up the hearing, the teaching, the reading, and learning of the Word of God. That we believe that faith comes by hearing. This is Romans chapter 10. And hearing by the word of God. That the church is important. The sacraments are essential. But what transforms the person is encountering God through the gospel, through the word of God, preached 
and proclaim. And what's interesting is that from the beginning, this message has come through what Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, 13, or 1 Corinthians 1. I like the old translation. Let me read the old translation. It is through the folly of preaching that we preach those to be saved. Let me say it again. I'll read the whole verse. For since in the wisdom of God the world did not have God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preached to save those who believe. Now sometimes that's translated foolishness, but it's this idea that somehow a person standing before a group of people talking about the word of God, talking about the good news of God, but somehow in that folly, okay, that foolishness, that's how people come to faith. It's not through refined arguments of philosophers, that's what Paul is saying here, but it's through listening to the word of God. Karl Barth, perhaps the greatest Protestant thinker since John Calvin, said this. As ministers, we ought to speak for God. We are humans, however, and we cannot speak of God. We ought, therefore, to recognize both our obligation and our inability, and by that way, recognize and give God the glory. One of the great problems, I think, in contemporary Christianity is because American Christianity has always been built on the marketing principle, because we don't have a state church. So from the beginning, you had to kind of get people into your, into your building, right? And of course, we've refined that in 2019 to where we have churches that are entertainment centers. Okay? And I don't think there's anything wrong inherently by trying to do whatever you do with excellence, okay? So I'm, I'm not meaning to judge, okay? But what I am saying, there's a temptation, as Paul even says in 2 Timothy, to give people what they want to hear. In other words, to try to create a Christian message that appeals to people politically, psychologically, to give you a message that makes you feel good, to present a God who's ready to give you whatever you need or want, perhaps to present a faith that if you do X, Y, and Z, then you'll get whatever you want. Perhaps to go listen to a message that condemns people that you already want to condemn. Okay, right? That reinforces your prejudices. Whatever they may be, right? Okay. I mean, we can, we can be prejudiced on the left, we can be prejudiced on the right. And you throw into the mix that we tend to go to church with people who are like us, right? So... All that together can mean the church just becomes something else that we do, that we kind of add to our lives. Maybe we feel good. Maybe we get a little inspired. We reinforce what we already think. And we go do our lives. You know, after World War II, that was a very important part of what made up the, the fabric of being an American, right? Okay. We survived the Depression. We defeated fascism. We came home and experienced the greatest economic boom in history of maybe the world. 
people prospered, people built new communities, and they built churches. And, that, and that's, that's what that was. And there was a lot of amazing things that happened. But it was part of what it meant to be a good citizen, right? And so there was something in part that was inherently not Christianary. It wasn't necessarily wrong, but being a Christian isn't something that's just part of what we do culturally. The Word of God is not to be something that merely reinforces what we already think. Now, when we are troubled, the Word of God can be a place of comfort. When we are lost, the Word of God can help find us. But when we are complacent, and whatever complacent things we are, whether that be our complacency in our prejudices, complacent in our sins, then the Word of God is to be a sword. It is to confront us. You know, one of the things that was interesting to me, I, I, uh, because being a pastor, and I teach my, I've taught my students and my staff this over the years, that so much of your ego gets wrapped up in your role as a preacher. I remember one time a committee wanted to come hear me, and they said they're interested. They were interested in me coming, you know, being a pastor. I'm not interested in moving. This was years ago, but they showed up anyway. And uh, then they sent me an email. Uh, we don't, we don't, we're not interested in you. Which I, I, I never said I was interested in them. They go, we're not interested in you. We don't like your style of preaching. And I said, well, I don't have a style. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know what I, I don't know. How can you not like a style? I never thought of myself having a style, right? But our egos are very wrapped up in it. And, and it's interesting. I have had, uh, one of the great things about doing this work is you kind of learn a lot about yourself. And so I've had people who, you know, I've built churches because people like my preaching, and I've seen a steady stream of people leave my churches because they didn't like my preaching. And one of the things I felt that from the beginning that was really important, regardless of of any ego needs that you may have. The role of the pastor is to tell the truth the best you know. It is to preach the text as clear as you can. When Paul says here, and, and this is a very powerful thing he says here, I solemnly urge you to proclaim the message, be persistent whether the time is favorable or unfavorable, convince, rebuke, encourage, and be patient. Don't tell people what they want to hear, but tell them the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's where we are changed. And that's what's really a central part of our Reformed faith. The Reformed faith, and it says this in a number of the confessions, that there's something that happens when the word of God is proclaimed rightly, that we have an opportunity to encounter the living word, Christ, in our midst. We believe that preaching has a sacramental quality to it. But see, that's not just about what is said. So, you know, regardless of whether I'm entertaining or I'm particularly clear on a Sunday, it's not the point. The point is, are you open to hear what's present in the Word of God? Are you open to be convinced, rebuked, and encouraged? Are we open to have our minds changed by what the text says? Are we open to be able to hear God speaking to us in the midst 
of the word proclaimed. Karl Barth, again, one time said, this is one of my favorite quotes. It's something that I've always tried to think about. Before the preacher lie the Bible full of mystery, and before him or her are seated the more or less numerous hearers, also full of mystery, and indeed is more so. So what do you do now, right? See, we stop and think about the one moment here, you have the word of God. And as he says earlier, one can't really know what God is about, yet we're required to talk about God. So that is on the preacher's side, should always keep us humble. It should always keep us humble when we do this work. But also there's this mystery of God in you. Each of you are facing different things in your life and in your faith. There are great joys, there are great struggles, there's great tedium, right? And Bart goes on to say this. They expect us to understand them better than they understand themselves, and to take them more seriously than they take themselves. In other words, the, the, the task of preaching is to take you sometimes even more seriously than you take yourselves. I think sometimes the task of preaching is that the preacher takes themselves more seriously than they ought to, all right? That's, 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 that is an occupational hazard. Okay. Right. That's why we need to say our prayers. That's why I ask you to pray for me also a sinner, right? Because I am one. And this, this role has all kinds of temptations to it. But the truth of the matter is that there is a miracle in that you are here this this week. <laughs> there's a miracle every time you come. But there's also a potential miracle going on with the word of God proclaimed. I mean, part of what is given to us is the possibility that if we encounter Christ in our worship, in the word proclaimed, in the sacrament, then we have an opportunity to be renewed. We have an opportunity to be strengthened in our faith. We have an opportunity to be fed on the very word of God. It's always been my intent when I preach to teach because I want you to know the scriptures. I don't want you to be dependent on me in that way. That was what the Reformation was about. So the word of God, the Bible, could be given to the people. And probably one of the great sins of, of all of us is how much we just don't take advantage of the free access we have to the Bible. But the potential here, the, the opportunity, the promise that is given in this encounter between the word proclaimed and the word heard is that we can be strengthened. I mean, the power of Paul in this passage is not what he's also saying about preaching, but what Christ has been given to him. Listen to the last quote. For I'm being poured out as a libation. The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good faith. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. How do we fight the good fight? How do we finish the race? How do we keep the faith? Well, in part, it's by being strengthened in our prayers, in our reading, in our service, and in our encountering the Word of God. I don't. I really don't try to be boring. I mean, it gives me reason. Okay, I just think about this a lot. 
So I want it to be something that you can hear. I want it to be something that you enjoy. But most importantly, I want it to be something that you can learn and know and open your hearts up to encounter God. God has a gift for each of you every week. It may not be a gift that I intend to give. It may not be a gift that you even know you need. But God is present in some way every week in the gathering of his people. Where two or three are gathered together, there he is also. Many of us are faced with multiple decisions, multiple situations each week. Part of what the Bible gives to us is help, guidance, solace, hope, an opportunity to kind of find our way through this world. What God wants to give us is God's self, right? That's always what God wants to give. That's the only gift God has. God doesn't want to make you rich. God's not going to keep you from getting sick. God's not going to prevent tragedies from happening to you. Everybody Jesus healed died. But God does want to give you God's self. And one of the great rediscoveries is something that Luther and Calvin did in the They rediscovered the idea that God comes to us in this moment, not only in breaking the bread, but through this word, this interaction. Through when we talk about the gospel, when we teach the Bible, when we preach the Bible, when we listen to the Bible, there's an opportunity for God to speak to each of us in powerful ways. We um, sing this little song in the preschool. It goes like this. Don't try to tell me that God is dead. He woke me up this morning. Don't try to tell me that God is dead. He lives within my heart. He opened up my blinded eyes. He set me on my way. Don't try to tell me that God is dead. I talked to him today. Well, the good news, if you're listening, he's speaking to you as well. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's stand together and proclaim what we believe are the words of the Nicene Creed.